0: Two, uh, two scriptures tonight. The first, the first of our readings tonight is Jonah chapter one. It's uh, six hundred pages, six hundred and fifty-four of your uh, church Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell uh, fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you be asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and, he, and we will not perish. Then the soldiers said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do? What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for, making this, uh, for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights.
1: Um, The second reading is on page 795. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, We received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience
0: that comes from faith, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ.
1: Thanks, Josh and Tyler. We are starting, am I on? Yes, we're starting a new uh, sermon series in Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm pretty excited to preach Romans, I'm a bit daunted to preach Romans. It's one of the most difficult letters in the New Testament. But here's the reason I'm, ex- I'm excited to preach it. As I've read through church history, uh, you see countless men and women of God who have been converted through reading Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, here's a guy called Augustine. He's one of the early church fathers. He was 32 years old when he said his eyes were opened by Paul's letter to the Romans. He was sitting in a fig tree. He writes this, I, I found myself weeping before the Lord. I found the peace of God flooded my soul. It was as if all the shadows of doubts were dispelled. What, what a beautiful phrase. All the shadows of doubts were dispelled as he fixed his eyes on Jesus. Here's another man who was converted through this letter, his name is Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. Uh, this is a guy who spent his whole life being very religious, uh, but living in fear. He lived in fear of death, he lived in fear of God, he lived in fear of hell, he fasted, he prayed, he even became a monk. He writes this, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, (laughs) it was I. And one day he was reading Romans. He read this phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He read, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And he says, here I felt I was altogether born again. I felt I'd entered paradise itself through open gates. He'd understood that it wasn't about what he did, but what God had done for him, in the person of Jesus. Augustine was converted. Martin Luther was converted. Here's another man, John Wesley, the Methodist preacher, the hymn writer, and can it be? He writes this: "In my refined way, I trusted in my own works and my own righteousness. I was a great preacher." I thought I was so wise and so learned. I thought I was so important to the church. As I read Romans, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And that he had saved me from the law of death and sin. And then he wrote that, word, that hymn, and then no condemnation, here I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Augustine Luther Wesley. Here's a guy called Karl Barth. He's a 20th century theologian. He battled with this concept that man was basically good when he lived through World War One and saw man fighting against man. And in the book of Romans, he discovered this. The joy of God's grace the joy of God's grace to a sinful humanity shown in Jesus Christ. Uh, This letter, this letter to the Romans has transformed the lives of men and women throughout the centuries. And that's why I'm excited to preach it. Because I'm praying that in God's kindness, in God's mercy... There might be a few souls in this building, in this gathering, who are converted as the letter of Romans is preached. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You know you're not a Christian. You don't claim to be a Christian. And I pray that as you you, you understand Romans, you would see Jesus and you'd understand the gospel of grace. But maybe you're here and and like, like John Wesley, you're totally churched. You know what to say, you know how to say it, but you've never really met Jesus. You've never really understood grace. And I pray that God will grip you through this letter. And maybe here tonight and you're a stagnant Christian or a stale Christian or a mature Christian, I just pray through the letter of Romans that you will understand and just be blown away by the person of Jesus and the gospel of grace. And that's why I'm excited about preaching Romans. I've got two goals for tonight. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the whole letter and then just focus secondly on these first seven verses. Uh, The the preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached 19 sermons on the first seven verses. I've got about 15 minutes. Let's do an overview. What's this book really about? Please remember Romans is a letter... It's a pastoral letter. It's not just a doctrinal handbook. So who wrote it? Who's the author? Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Look at those three words. Servant, called, and set apart. It's just a, a beautiful way of describing yourself, isn't it? This man, Paul, was was a servant of Christ, literally a a slave, a doulos of Christ. That really means that he'd been bought at a price. It means he was owned by somebody. And Paul is just saying that, that Jesus had bought him at the price of his own blood, and he belonged to Jesus. Christ owns him. He's just a servant. He wants to serve his master, Jesus. He's a servant. He's called to be an apostle. So God called him. He didn't appoint himself. He wasn't chosen because of his eloquence. Apparently, the apostle Paul was a a bit of a doozy. He was a a short, overweight, inarticulate man. But God chose him. It's not what Paul did for God. It's what God did for Paul. And God opened Paul's eyes on the Damascus Road. And he saw the risen Lord Jesus. He was commissioned to be an apostle. A servant of Christ, called to be apostle. And look at the next phrase, set apart for the gospel of God. It's that word sanctified, made holy, set apart for God. It's not about what he does. It's who he does it for. It's about being a gospel man dedicated to Jesus. Look at those words again, servant, called, set apart. Aren't they beautiful words of a follower of Christ? Not what Paul does for God what God has done for Paul. And you know, Paul has been stripped of his pride. Paul has been stripped of his egotism. It's not about him. It's not about his achievements. It's all about Jesus. And when you've understood that, it's not what you do for God, but what Jesus has done for you. That totally transforms you. No pride. No egotism. It's just about how you can serve and honor your master. That's our author, a servant called and set apart. Date and place. Uh, well, Paul tells us in chapter 16, verse 23, that he's staying at Gaius' house. And, and Gaius is, is a Corinthian, and so Paul is writing from Corinth. It's about AD 57, about the end of his third journey. He's been a Christian for about 25 years. Who's he writing to? I love this phrase in 1, verse 7. Uh, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Just all the followers of Jesus in Rome. He's not writing to any one church. Because there's not just one church in Rome. It's like he's writing to, to all the churches in Sydney. In Rome it would be the little, little house churches. And my guess is that he is deliberately doing that. He's writing to all the churches you know, who are not talking to each other. He's writing to all the churches who, who think that they're the only church who have got it right. He's writing to all the denominations, all the stars of church who have issues with each other. He's saying, you need to hear this. Rome was the most important city of the day. It's a predominantly Gentile church because all the Jews were excluded or expelled about five years before he wrote this letter. A predominantly Gentile church with a few Jews left. Now why is he writing? What's the purpose? Every letter has a purpose, doesn't it? Uh, You've got to get the purpose right, because it changes the way that you read a letter. Let me give an example. If someone sends you a complaint letter, please don't read it as a thank you letter. If someone sends you a letter with lots of questions they want answered, please don't just read it as a letter imparting information. They want you to respond in some way. So why is Paul writing this letter? There's three reasons. It's a missionary letter. So he's writing to gather support for his mission to Spain. But really, it's a pastoral letter. And the problem is really obvious. The key verse here is chapter 15, verse 5 to 6. It says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of, of unity among yourselves, as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and with one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the problem, the pastoral issue. There is disunity, there is division, and there's infighting. And so the Jewish Christians think that they are superior by keeping the law, and the Gentile Christians think that they are superior because they're flaunting their freedom in Christ. And that is causing disunity and and division. And it's basically a pastoral problem of church fighting. Isn't that true today? That some Christians are struggling in their faith because of in-church fighting and division. And isn't that true that the world kind of laughs at Jesus because it sees his bride, the church, with lots of infighting? That's the pastoral issue, accord to unity in the person of Christ. It's a pastoral letter, but it's also a theological letter. Listen carefully. Pastoral problems always stem from a theological issue. Pastoral problems stem from a theological issue. And so the only way to deal with disunity it's not about just teaching to love each other. There's a theological issue underlying it, and the issue is a wrong view of how you're saved. So if you think that your works contribute to your salvation, of course you're going to be proud and competitive. But if you think that you can just uh, flaunt your freedom, it doesn't matter how you live, you're going to cause someone to stumble. And so the theological issue here is this. Listen carefully. You're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That's the theological issue. You're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone. And that simple truth, it's such a simple, basic truth. You're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. That will just totally transform you. Who are you? How do you see yourself? You're not a good Christian or, or a bad Christian. You're just a Christian, saved by grace. It will just change the way you see other people around you. Like They're not better, not worse than you. They're just all saved by grace. And it changes the way you see our world. They need to hear the gospel of grace. And that's the book of Romans. And I think that's why we need to hear Romans in this church. We need to stop, hear me correctly, we need to stop focusing all our attention on programs and projects and our needs, and our deeds, and lift our eyes again onto Jesus, and lift our eyes again onto grace, and see the glory of the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. Because when you do that, it totally humbles you, and inspires you, and liberates you. That's the overview of Romans. The gospel of grace that will liberate you. So how does Paul begin? Just two points tonight. Not 19 sermons, just two quick points. Here's the first one. It's all about God and not about us. It's all about God and not about us. Have you ever heard that quote from Augustine? Our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. We love that quote. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. We love that quote, except that we ignore the whole context of that quote. Uh, Where Augustine has spent uh, pages talking about God's holiness and and God's glory and God's majesty, and he's just glorified this beautiful picture of God, and we just pick up that one phrase, which is all about us. And what's one of the most popular songs that we like? What about me? And it's almost like the letter of Romans says, What about you? It's not about you, it's all about God. You see, this is, this is trend that we put ourselves at the center of everything. Now, we even put ourselves at the center of the gospel. And so the gospel becomes about God satisfying my needs or God satisfying my desires or bringing me joy or bringing me peace or my hurts being healed. And uh, all that is true. All that is a beautiful truth, the consequence of the gospel, your hurts will be healed, you will have joy, you will have peace. But that's not the centre of the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus. Now, people often say to me, Paul, in your sermons, just tell me what to do. Just give me a little thing of what to do. Help me be a happier, better person. That's the wrong question. What is it about Jesus that you've understood tonight? I met with the music, the music leaders on Thursday night to, to cull our song list. Because so many of our songs are about I, 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 I. Almost we come to church telling God what we're going to do for him. Now what's the issue here? If you put yourself at the center of the gospel, listen carefully, your spiritual life will be this emotional roller coaster. If you put yourself at the center of the gospel, your spiritual life with this emotional roller coaster, you have these massive highs and massive lows depending on how you're feeling. And that's what's so liberating about the book of Romans. It's not about you, it's all about God. Look at four prepositions. The gospel is of God. One verse one, set apart for the gospel of God. It belongs to God. It comes from God. It's not a man-made gospel. God has chosen to reveal his gospel. He's been speaking. He's been revealing it to us. He's the source, if you want. It's of God. It is from God. It's that in verse 2, the gospel that, that God promised beforehand, before Jesus came, the gospel was there. He promised it beforehand through his prophets. Not by his prophets, but through his prophets, because God is the author, the speaker in the Holy Scriptures. Someone has said you can see the gospel on every page of Scripture. Right? So God has promised that he would send a king from the line of David to Samuel 7. He kept that promise. God had promised he would send. His son, Psalm 2, he kept that promise. God had promised in Isaiah that the the Messiah would suffer. He kept that promise. See, my fear is that for some of us, the gospel is all about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And just occasionally we, we remember the ascension. The gospel began at the beginning of time. The gospel is on every page of scripture. If you like, the gospel is this massive jigsaw puzzle where the Old Testament is all your edging and most of the jigsaw, and Jesus is just there at the centerpiece of it all. And again, my fear is that for many of us, we just don't know our Old Testaments. And we don't see the beauty and the joy of how God has just been so faithful and He's kept all these promises. And when you do see the glory of the Old Testament, you just see Jesus in this more beautiful way. God has kept His promise, it's from God, and it's about God. This is such a simple point. The gospel is all about God, Jesus is the center. Because if there's no Jesus, there's no gospel. 1 verse 3. It's the gospel about or or regarding his son. Now what do we learn about Jesus in these verses? These are packed theological truths, Christology. Look at verse 3 with me. Regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. I could say more, but basically he's just saying that, uh, that Jesus had two natures. He had his earthly nature, he became flesh. He left his heavenly throne and stepped into our world who, who uh, regarding his son, who was his human nature was a descendant of David. Uh, he's saying more than that he's from the line of David. Yes, he was from the line of David. It is more than that. He is saying that, that when Jesus stepped onto the earth, he's actually fulfilling all of those Davidic promises. Do you remember? Uh, the prisoner set free, the blind given sight, the deaf hearing, and that joy of being in God's presence, God dwelling with us. In his human nature, we can... Dwell with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember when blind Bartimaeus met Jesus? He didn't call him the son of God, he called him the son of David. Because he's fulfilling all those promises. Yes, he was human, but he's also the son of God. Verse 4, he was, through the Holy Spirit, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection. He didn't become the son of God at the resurrection, but the resurrection declared him with power to be the Son of God. He's almost contrasting, you know. In his earthly nature, he was frail, he was weak, he was humble. But as a resurrection, he was strong, he was mighty, he was majestic, he was reigning on high, he was the Son of God. And that is Jesus. Always existed, stepped into the world, Son of David, reigning on high as the resurrected Son of God. And verse 5. It's through him, through Jesus, that we've received grace. Without Jesus, no grace. So here's the challenge for us. What happens if you don't put Jesus at the center of the gospel? Think about that question. What happens if you don't put Jesus at the center of the gospel? What happens is that you shift your focus onto the results of the gospel, and you know, how to live need for unity, the promise of heaven, but you've ignored Jesus. Or, you just shift all your focus onto us and onto people, loving each other, loving our community, feeding the hungry, mending the broken-hearted. They're good and right things, but they all flow from Jesus. And here's the challenge. I reckon that our world sometimes wants to know about God, but rarely wants to know about Jesus. Our world sometimes respects God, but on the whole, it hates Jesus. And our world tolerates God and religion, but it finds Jesus intolerable. And if you don't talk about Jesus, if you don't understand that He is central to everything about the gospel, there is no gospel. It's of God, it's from God, it's about God, and lastly, it's for God, it's for His glory. See that again in verse 5? Through him and for his name's sake. It's all about Jesus. For the glory, for the name, for the fame of Jesus. And again, I think that's a danger for our church. A new kind of imperialism. All this talk about missional churches and amazing programs and amazing training and amazing teaching. It's actually about Jesus and His glory. There's a trend in, in churches to, to almost glorify and magnify certain preachers, or, or glorify and magnify certain churches. On Friday night, I, I checked out 10 websites, of, websites of, of 10 of the most popular, trendiest churches in our world. And let me say, you had to search very, very hard go down to level two or level three on the website before you found the name Jesus. You see, I do hope that here in Kirill, people know that church by the bridge is not just people who love each other and love our community, but we love Jesus. And I do hope that you know that I don't care which church you choose to join. The most important thing is that you love Jesus. And that you find a church that will help you love Jesus better and better and better. It's all about Jesus, and it's not about us. It's all about God and not about you. And when you've grasped that, it is the most liberating thing in terms of your identity, in terms about who you are. Here's my second point. It's not who you are. It's whose you are. And that's not, that's not just using Westy language. It's not who you are, but whose you are. It's not about whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter. Or, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters whose you are, who you belong to. There's two beautiful phrases that I want you to take and just just cling on to and meditate on. One comes in verse 6. And you also are among those who are called. Who are you? Whose are you? Well, you're called. You're called by God, you're called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says the same in verse seven, you're called to be saints. It's just this beautiful word that, that God, the God of the universe, has chosen to call you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. You didn't reach out to him, but he called you. He opened your eyes. He blocked unblocked your ears. He softened your heart. He he stripped you of pride and he called you to be his son. He called you to be his daughter. Now for Paul, that was the Damascus Road. For, for me, that was a, a place in Oxford 21 years ago. I don't know when God called you. I don't know how God called you. But if you're here today and you're following Jesus, there was a time and there was a, a place where God called you. And he called you, verse 6, to look at it, to, to belong. Not to belong to a Church. He called you to belong to a person. And that person is called Jesus Christ. You see, in a way, he's saying exactly what Paul said in verse 1, that you belong to Jesus, you're a servant of Jesus. You're owned by Jesus. He's your master, he's your Lord. And that is the most liberating truth. You're not restricted in any way, it's total freedom. You belong to the one who knows you and cares for you and knows what's best for you. Whose are you? You're gods. Because he's called you. Whose are you? You're gods because he loves you. That's the other beautiful phrase in verse 7. To all in Rome who are, who are loved by God. And when I first read this, I thought, oh yeah, I know that. I'm loved by God. And I thought, yeah, God loves Everybody. You know, God loves the whole world, and that is true. Therefore, you know, God so loved the world. But that's not the word he uses here. The word he uses here is literally that, that special love that God has for his son and his daughter. That special love that God has for the believer. That, that covenantal love. That undeserved, unconditional, no matter what you've done kind of love. That love that will never leave you. That love that will never disappear. That love that you can never run away from because he'll just keep on running after you and holding on to you. That's the kind of love that God has for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see how those two truths liberate you? It's not who you are. I don't care how many qualifications you have I don't care what you look like. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I don't care what job you do or where you're going to be in 20 years' time. It doesn't matter. What matters is whose you are. Has God called you? Do you understand that he loves you? They're just beautiful truths that will liberate you from this this achievement-driven world and will liberate you from this identity-driven world where you need to be somebody. You are somebody. You are somebody because you're loved by God and called by God. It's not about you. It's all about God. It's not who you are. It's whose you are. Now what would the Apostle Paul say to that famous song, What About Me? He'd say, what about you? Get over yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See that gospel of grace. And understand how much God has done for you and how much God loves you. And that will free you. And that will liberate you. And that's all you need to know. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace that you have lavished on us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've called us, that you've reached out and you've called our name. We thank you that our names are written in that book of life. We thank you that you love us. We don't deserve that love, and sometimes we don't feel that love, but we know that your love is steadfast and unchanging. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus in his name.